Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Today's episode, the ISO, with one of my favorite guests, one of my favorite former teammates. We are, I don't know if you can call us competitors in this realm of what we both do now. I think we're friendly companions sharing notes occasionally throughout the college basketball season, current analyst, mostly for Fox Sports, a little bit with Pac-12, one of the best scorers in all of Southern California basketball high school history, Casey Jacobson. Hopefully I didn't miss anything on that intro. Well, I think I did. The mayor of Bomberg, Germany. How's that? (laughs) Oh, Dan. Yeah, no, that was good, man. Uh, No one cares. The older we get, Dan, no one cares what our stats were back in the day, right? Uh, It's all about the new crop of of players that we get to uh, talk about. Uh, but thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, love it. Um, love talking hoops with you. Absolutely. Yeah, you're you're very correct in the fact that people now that we become more and more removed, people forget some of the things that we did. And not to go too much down memory lane, but is there one accomplishment from your playing career when you take a step back all these years later? You're like, that's pretty cool. That's that's awesome. I was able to do that or be a part of that. So I would say that um, I got to play on a USA national team twice that traveled the world. So my senior year in high school, I played in the world youth games in Moscow, Russia, and just taking a step back and thinking like, wow, I was selected for the, like there was only one high school team in all the country. And I got to rep- put a USA on my chest and go to Russia and we won a gold medal. We won the gold medal match against Russia in overtime. Russia had uh, Andre Kirilenko as their star player. And that was a really cool thing that, like, the older I get, I look back and like, wow, that was really incredible. And my, my, I have three daughters, and we have that jersey framed in the hallway of our home. And they're like, wow, Dad, you played for the USA team? I'm like, well, it's not like the dream team that LeBron and KD <laughs> play on. But, yeah, I did play on a USA team. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I also had the chance one time, World University Games, to play for USA uh, we played in Beijing against China in the semifinals, and we were the first USA team to lose in, I think, 40 years in that tournament. Oh, they yeah. had Mank Patir, Wang Zhizhi, and a guy that nobody really had heard of yet by the name of Yao Meng. So uh, those are great memories. I'm glad you brought yours up because that jogged my memory on that one too. So yeah. good stuff. Hey, College basketball, this last week or week and a half or so has just become topsy-turvy. I think we're in for another crazy week and a half or so. Um, What adjustments have you had to make with your schedule, your prep, but also maybe with the broadcast partners you work with? Yeah, I've had, uh, fortunately, I've only had two games postponed or canceled, right? And I say only, um, seriously, because I have, you know, we we work with people um, who have had a lot more. Um, A lot of my work, Dan, has been on the studio side for Fox over the last several years. Uh, I, I work more studio stuff than I actually do calling games. And because of that, it's actually good for me because in studios, you know, you'll have a double header or a triple header, right, that you're covering. And if one of the games gets canceled, it's okay. You can still have a studio show, right? I still go to work. And so that's happened several times where we've had a triple header. That's happened twice in the last two weeks. We've had a triple header and one of the three games was postponed, but we still go forward with the night of college hoops. So it's it's a lot. Um, you know, every day I, I check the, the schedule and I wonder or check Twitter feed and see which games are 
are canceled. But because I live in Southern California and Fox Sports Studios are in Los Angeles, um, it's a lot easier for me, even when a game is canceled. It's not like I had flights booked. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is it is better uh, that I live in Southern California. So even when I have to go to the studio, it's only an hour drive from my home. Uh, but yeah, it, this is crazy. I mean, right, currently right now, I think we have more than 60 uh, teams either on a COVID pause or just coming out of one. A lot of those are power conference schools, like a team like UCLA has only played nine games so far. They're still, you know, they're a top 10 team. They've only played nine games. Uh, it's pretty crazy, but uh, this is what we're doing, right? It's, I mean, all, I feel more bad, Dan. Uh, I, I feel badly for the kids more than you and I. Um, these, these kids thought that they were coming out the other side of this and we're going to uh, return to normalcy and we're certainly not not there. Yeah, that, that would be disappointing and frustrating if I were a student athlete in their position because you're right. It looked like everything was past this and it was almost smooth sailing. Um, but then to get kind of thrown right back in uh, to that kind of topsy-turvy world has got to be different and unique and interesting. With all the coaches that you've talked to with your preparations, is there one or two coaches that have, in your eyes, have stood out as far as messaging to their players uh, about big picture stuff of what's going on in the world? Um, yeah, I mean, th there's so many really good coaches that we get to cover, Dan. Good dudes. There are some bad, bad dudes too who aren't so nice and aren't so friendly. I'm not going to ask you about those guys. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple. I think Mick Cronin comes to mind. I already mentioned UCLA. Mick's got his head right. I mean, he knows, like, okay, they just made the Final Four last year. They returned basically their entire roster. Expectations are sky high. And their one blemish was a 20-point blowout loss to, to your Zags. But this is still a, a really, really good team. They haven't been able to get out of the blocks the last three weeks and, and, and get into their Pac-12 schedule. They've yet to play a Pac-12 game. They were supposed to play Arizona, another top 15 opponent. They were supposed to play USC, who is one of the uh, few undefeated teams still left. Like both of those games got canceled. And when you talk to Mick, he's just he, he's OK with it. Right. He's frustrated, but he's like, hey, we will get through this. We're going to be mentally stronger at the end of it. And the goal, what, what I'm impressed about Mick, and it's true for his team last year, Dan, he understands that the goal isn't to be great in December and January. The goal is to be great in March. So he still has time with his team. Even if UCLA takes a couple of losses, let's say theoretically they lose a couple in the Pac-12, maybe to, to teams that they should beat. It's not like he's like, you can still get better despite losses. You can still get worse despite wins. The, the point is to be better in March and possibly April. So I still have my eye on, on UCLA. I still, I still think that they're going to be there at the end of the year. I agree. I, I've had a chance to call a couple games when, when Mick Cronin was at Cincinnati and I found his approach I don't want to say refreshing because I don't think that's the right word, but I, I, I thought it was spot on as far as when he was talking about the progression of his team and certain players throughout the course of the year. And then you go back and watch him later if you don't call a game and you see a lot of those traits that he was talking about wanting to see developed and seeing it happen. Um, so I would agree. I know a lot of people initially had their eyes on other guys for UCLA, but I think UCLA got the right guy um, because he's doing a tremendous job down there. You have to have thick skin too if you're going to be a coach at UCLA. Don't you agree? 
No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it, it's one of the pressure cooking jobs that we have uh, in the country, uh, just because the the tradition, right? What, what John Wooden set, he set a, an impossible standard that no one could live up to. And I mean, no one, not even Coach K, Bill Self, Roy Williams, if any of those guys were coaching UCLA, they'd probably be under more pressure at UCLA than they were at their schools that they coached. So it's, it's a unique job. I think mixed ton. Uh, not just a good job, not just a great job, but I don't know uh, of anybody besides maybe the top five coaches in the country that could have navigated uh, that job so far better than he has. You know, I get a chance to call my alma mater a lot for regional games. Um, you probably get one or two Stanford games a year through the Pac-12 network. Uh, is there still an allegiance there when you call those games or, or a tug to call them pro Stanford? Um, and then what type of job do you think Jared Haas is doing? Because I had them earlier in the year and they didn't look great, but now they're starting to turn the corner and they look pretty good. I think you had the game at Santa Clara, right? Yeah. On CBS Sports Network. Yeah, I watched that game. That wasn't great. That game was over at halftime. Um, so, but your first question, yes, I, I've, I've called at least three Stanford games every year since I've been broadcasting and this is now my eighth year. Um, and I would say to that, no, I am like, I, I think I'm maybe more to, to the other way. I really, because, yeah, because I have such a high standard for Stanford, I think I'm a little bit harder on, on them. Um, Stanford's only made one NCAA tournament in the last 13 years. Uh, so the last two coaches have been, of course, Jared Hass is there now. And then Johnny Dawkins, Johnny Dawkins only made one tournament. Um, he, he didn't make a sweet 16. Uh, in 2013, I believe that was. Um, but uh, anyways, um, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm hard on them. Uh, you know, I, I want them to return to the glory years when I was there and, and shortly after uh, myself when, you know, the Lopez brothers and Josh Childress uh, continued it where, you know, Stanford was competing for Pac-12 championships every year and we're competing for a top three seed in the NCAA tournament every year. Uh, now we're, we're struggling, can't even get to the tournament. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hard on them, but uh, I love every time I go back to Maples Pavilion in Palo Alto. Um, I have great memories there, but uh, yeah. So Jared Hass is now in his sixth year. Um, he's yet to make an NCAA tournament. This team that he has this year, I knew this was going to be a, a more of a rebuilding year because you remember, Dan, they lost Oscar Da Silva, who was one of the most underrated power forwards in the entire country last year. He was the heart and soul of their team. They also lost Dejon Davis, who transferred to Washington. Uh, Bryce Wills, who was their best perimeter defender, decided to forego his last year and enter uh, or become a pro. So they lost three seniors, three probably their most athletic players. So this is going to be a rebuild year. They have a nice freshman in Harrison Ingram I like a lot, but he's not enough right now. Uh, they're one of the younger teams in the entire Pac-12 conference, so they're going to take uh, some punches on the chin this year. I don't expect them to make another tournament and we'll see. I mean, we'll see, you know, coach has his future. If you coach at any power conference school for six years and don't make a tournament, your job is certainly in jeopardy. I don't know. I mean, I'm not the, the AD that's Bernard Muir at Stanford. That's his decision, but I know coach has, uh, has expected and wanted more. He's even told me so in our phone conversations, he knows that, that the expectations were to get back to the tournament and he hasn't been able to do it. So we'll see. 
Well, you mentioned Harrison Ingram, and I liked his game when I saw him in person. Uh, I, I know that uh, as all freshmen, some ups and downs, but I, I like his potential. Hopefully he stays. Uh, it's called the farm, right? Stanford's called right. the farm. Hopefully he stays on the farm for, for a little bit longer to get that program's trajectory back where you would like it. But when you look at landscape of the entire country, take out Banchero and take out Chet Holmgren. Are there any other freshmen that are catching your eye right now? Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> I was doing some research for studio shows, and Dan, this is like kind of the most underwhelming freshman class in a long time. I think part of it is because of COVID, we've had a lot of super seniors, yeah. so fifth and sixth year seniors, which has, has kind of marginalized some of the freshmen, right? Maybe some of the freshmen who would be getting early minutes in the non-conference, and then by conference season, they're developing, and they're already, you know, they're not, they're not freshmen anymore. They're sophomores. There's less of that. So, but there are a couple that have really stood out, stood out to me. One is Jabari Smith at Auburn. I don't know if you've seen this kid play. Yeah, I've he, seen clips. I haven't seen a full game, but he he looks legit. Oh, Dan, he is 6'10", but he plays like a wing. And so kind of like um, uh, uh, Michael Porter, Michael Porter Jr. for the Denver Nuggets. I know he's hurt right now, but like he a Jabari Smith is a 6'10 guard who can play both sides of the ball, who can grab a rebound, bring it up the court. He goes between the legs. He can shoot threes. He can dunk on dudes. He's been really impressive. Like I, I, I he's got to be a top five um, pick in the draft to me. Uh, you know, and Kennedy Chandler, he's a point guard for Tennessee. You know, Dan, you played the point guard position. I claim it to be the the most difficult position to play or to master the most important position in basketball and Kennedy Chandler to me has done a really nice job as a freshman. Um, you know, Tennessee has some, a, a lot of veterans like Viscovi and John Fulkerson. He's come in and kind of seamlessly fit really well, super good athlete, not very tall. I think he's only six one, but really fast um, and a good score. And I think Tennessee is kind of one of those sleeper teams out of the sec as well. Um, that if he develops and gets a little bit older, um, will be really good. So, uh, yeah, a couple good freshmen, but not nearly as many as we normally see. I think, to me, the biggest, uh, the best class amongst freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors has been the sophomore. I think there's so many really good sophomores in college basketball this season. Yeah, on that point about freshmen not getting to play, I read a stat. This was about a month, uh, maybe two, three weeks ago. So I don't know how current it is, but it caught my eye because – uh, of the Power Six, Power Five, plus the Big East teams, uh, there was only, I think, 22 freshmen, true freshmen, that were averaging over 20 minutes a game. That's eye-opening. <laughs> and so it kind of talks, speaks just to the point you're talking about. Those super seniors are soaking up all those minutes that the freshmen would be learning under. Yeah, it really is a unique year last year was unique in its own regard right Dan but this year we didn't really even know the fallout effects of having allowing guys back another year and I I think it's a good thing I I absolutely think the NCAA did the right thing in allowing players to kind of have a free year last year it was so disjointed that let's not you know um, hold those guys accountable or, or ruin a senior season where some guys only got to play half of the season or some guys in the Ivy League didn't even get to play at all so allow them to come back but yeah the, the after effects of that on the younger players in college basketball, I don't think we really fully appreciated what, what it would do. Yeah, and I think the other thing is it's doing is it completely changed the recruiting calendar for current high school kids. If you're a senior in high school and you're locked and loaded 
signed with a Division One program, you are truly elite. Now there's going to have less uh, opportunities, I think, um, you know, for the late signing seniors because it's going to be the transfer portals kind of mixing everything together. But I think it's like the junior class that's getting kind of squeezed out at the high school level this year. It takes a couple years to play itself out. Um, Last question, Casey, before I let you go, because I know we both have some game prep to do. Um, you played on some of the Phoenix Suns eight seconds or less teams with Mike D'Antoni. Yes, yeah, seven and, seconds or less. Don't, seven don't, seconds. Don't change it. Now. <laughs> yeah, go. I mean, well, and you did have the maestro of point guards during that era, Steve Nash orchestrating everything. When you look at how the game is played now at the professional level and at the college level, how much influence do you think those teams coached by Dan Tony and, and kind of led by Steve Nash had on the game now? That's a really interesting question. I mean, we could spend a whole nother 20 minutes talking about it, but if I had to, to sum it up, um, I would say, yeah, you know, those teams never won a championship, right, Dan? But you don't have to win a championship to change the game. Um, you don't, you know, you don't have to be considered like Jordan's Bulls, a dynasty to really have a huge effect um, uh, on the sport. And I absolutely agree with you that that I think the, the Suns team, that era, Mike D'Antoni and Steve Nash were a perfect marriage. They worked really well together. And uh, I, I think it changed how people play pick and roll as well. I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't want to overstate it, but I do think that, you know, not only tempo playing up, more up tempo basketball, but also, the reliance on pick and roll. We were one of the first teams. When I say we, I was a part of that Phoenix Suns team in 2003, 2004, and 2005 before I got traded and you and I were teammates in New Orleans. Um, we relied on, on Steve Nash pick and roll offense. That, that was all we did. I mean, we, we were up tempo. We like to get something quick on the break, right? Seven seconds or less that you talked about. But after that, Dan, we ran like five plays total. <laughs> All we did was run pick and roll basketball. And, you know, the interesting stat that I keep, we, I think Bolt and I are, we're, we're basketball nerds. We keep notes and stats that we find that are interesting. And one of the ones that I kept, and I actually reviewed it yesterday. In 2012, Dan, so less than a decade ago, in 2012, only two college basketball programs in all of Division I averaged more than 20 ball screens per game, right? So 20 or more ball screens or more per game. Only two programs. Last year in the 2021 season, over 200 men's college basketball teams averaged 20 or more pick and rolls. And that's just in less than a decade span. I'm not going to give full credit to the seven seconds or less sons, but it certainly started that era of people were thinking, what is the hardest thing and the most yeah. efficient thing to do on offense? And it's screen and roll. Now you have to have a good point guard and you have to have, you know, shooters, maybe a good rolling big guy, right? So not everybody is successful in pick and roll because they don't have the personnel, but the Phoenix Suns certainly were with Steve Nash running it, Amari Stoudemire screen and diving, you know, Joe Johnson, Quentin Richardson, maybe myself uh, shooting from, from the three. So if you have the right um, uh, roster, Dan, it's almost impossible with proper spacing to guard pick and roll offense. Yeah, I think if you couple that with the continuity ball screen offense that was kind of brought from Europe, Gonzaga's run it for years, a number of other teams uh, run it as well now in college. I think you're seeing what you're talking about, that that stat of amount of pick and rolls. I'm going to throw this stat out to you and look into this because it, it blew my mind when I 
read this a couple weeks ago preparing for a Gonzaga versus Bellarmine game. So you talked about the amount of pick and rolls that have been run. Well, Bellarmine's offense is on the complete flip side now. I think yeah, they, they, they pass like, it, right? Yeah, so they they basically press on offense is what their coach calls it. So it's constantly putting in the defense in a position where they have to adjust. So they count the amount of passes, and they, ha- they have a goal of, I think it's four ball reversals per offensive possession. And anytime they get more than four, their field goal percentage skyrockets. It's like 63, 64% or something like that. Um, they run – uh, less than five pick and rolls a game. Um, when I got a chance to talk to their coach in depth, I was blown away, absolutely blown away by the things that they focus on and look for. I mean, you're talking about pivots and ball fakes and and second side reversal actions and, and uh, back cuts. And they, they talk about spacing on the weak side where they drag at the right time. I'm telling you, as a guy that loves basketball as much as I know you do, Check out Bellerman's offense. It's it's not for everybody, but it's a lot of fun yeah. to watch. I've actually come across uh, their stats before in studying yeah. the game, and yeah, they are truly unique. And the only thing I'll add to that, Dan, is I, the Bellerman uh, coaching staff must be big fans of the movie Hoosiers because you remember Norman Dale, which was you know he's the head coach for Hickory. Yeah, he demanded that you pass the ball four times before you shoot it. So that's yes. Bellerman style, right? So speaking of Hickory. I got a Hickory shirt for Christmas. My family and I, we had watched Hoosiers maybe a week or so ago, and I made a comment, and uh, you know my wife, Heather. Uh, she filed it away and got me a Christmas present, Hickory, Jimmy Chitwood shirt. So uh, can't can't get enough Hoosiers during basketball season. Did I tell you that I once played a pickup game with Jimmy Chitwood? Like no, you didn't. Actor? Yeah, in, really? in Irvine. Yeah, he. it was at the, um, I don't know, whatever, whatever fitness center. I was there with Miles Simon. We were just playing pickup, and Jimmy Chitwood was there, and we were like, "Oh my gosh, I'm gonna play, play pickup with Chitwood." He was a little bit older now, so but you can still, you can still, you know, the bookend. He still had the bookend, yeah. but uh, that's amazing. Now all you have to do is play a pickup game with Jim Caviezel, uh, and then you'll have played with Jesus. And you'll have <laughs> played with Jimmy Chitwood. Now, that, if you can find a way to play three on three, you and those oh, two, you got it covered. Great. I did play a pickup game with Will Smith. Who's the most famous person non-basketball that you've ever played basketball with? Oh, my gosh. I play, I played pickup with Will Smith in Park City, Utah, randomly. It's like he was there for Sundance Film Festival. Yeah. And uh, he had a son, too. Not the one that was in Karate Kid, but the, I think it was his son's name was Trey. Um, so Trey and Will Smith came in the gym. I just happened to be there with, with some buddies and uh, play pickup with them. So. You know, I, I can't think of like, a, I, I don't live in Southern California like you do. So my random kind of celebrity <laughs> crossings don't occur as much. Sure. Uh, Richie Sexton was a great baseball player. I used to play basketball with him. Um, but my only unique tie-in to, to celebrities and, and basketball was years ago, uh, right when I finished playing, uh, Adam Sandler was looking for a former NBA player to, to train with and train him, getting him ready for a possible movie. And my agent called me and he was like, hey, this is out of the blue. Would you have interest in, in going down to L.A. for like a month and doing two a day trainings with Adam Sandler? And I was like, what? Yes, let's do it. It ended up never coming to fruition. But that would have been pretty, pretty fun. Pretty cool to that do. Would have been cool. Yeah, so. Well, awesome, Casey. I appreciate the time. Um, looking forward to catching you again on, on some games and some studio work. So uh, enjoy 
not flying as much, but driving to that studio, calling games, as well as analyst work with the studio. So thanks again, bud. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. I'm happy for all your success at CBS, man. Keep it up. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.